Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of our glorious inheritance among the saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to talk about sanctity. People say from time to time these days, nothing is sacred anymore. People can feel like things which used to be respected, accrued reverence, are being defaced, are being defiled, are being profaned. National monuments are painted on. Artists display crucifixes in containers of urine. Anything goes, it may seem. Nothing is holy. There are no boundaries anymore. But there are some things we still might revere that still might provoke in us the feeling that, uh, of shock when something is, is defiled, is desecrated. There can be some acts which we feel are kind of sacrilege in a way. On the 28th of September this year, the Sycamore Gap tree in England was felled by vandals. This tree was, you know, attracted words like iconic. It was the 2016 English Tree of the Year. It was photographed, loved, visited, and it was felled in the night by vandals. The destruction of such a noble and beautiful natural wonder is for many people heartbreaking and strikes many as a kind of defilement, a desecration of what should be actually revered. On the 24th of May 2020, Rio Tinto blasted blasted what is described by some as a sacred rock shelter, which contained remnants of Indigenous use and occupation. And this too provoked, as we know, outrage and a sense that something had been desecrated, something sacred had been destroyed. And so if natural beauty on the one hand and human cultural products on the other are still in some fashion felt to be sacred, so much the more is the human body, the human being, still to us, I think, sacred. People may still have this very visceral sense that a person can be defiled by another. That something sacred about a person can be violated. And this is, this is beyond ordinary crime. This is a kind of sacrilege, a kind of desecration. Now, anything that is holy, anything that is sacred, anything that has this aura about it, this sense of sanctity, derives that sanctity from God. He is the one of whom the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Sacredness, the sacredness that is God's and that comes from God, requires proper handling. It requires a prudent distance between the holy and the profane. It requires a kind of proper setting, a suitable place for the holy to dwell. If in a secular age uh, the world's great art masterpieces might be thought of as in some ways the most priceless and holy objects of our, our time, our secular way of thinking, then where are they put? They're put in beautiful, expensive museums. And measures are put in place to prevent 
their priceless integrity being damaged. And it is a sure way to get people's attention is to attack those holy objects. Access is controlled and managed in a suitable place. In today's passage from Exodus, we have the beginnings of a long set of sanctuary building instructions, which we are not going to work our way through in detail. But the, the general uh, plan and scheme and aim is laid out by God to Moses in verse 8. He says, And have them, the Israelites, make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. In accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so the God whose sacredness itself is to have a place among this very ordinary set of rather profane people. And so today I want to think about two things. Firstly, God's project to sanctify a place for him to dwell among the Israelites. And secondly, God's project to sanctify a people for him to dwell in, which is his larger and more final aim. So let's take the first one there, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a provisional sanctuary, a place for God to dwell with Israel as they go en route from Sinai to the promised land. Tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. The Israelites were instructed to build a beautiful, expensive, elaborate tent surrounded by a portable fence that enclosed a court. And the people were invited to donate suitable materials to this project. And the first part of the tabernacle and its furniture to be specified, to be described, is, as we've heard, the ark, the chest, the box of the covenant. Verse 10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. It shall be two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make a moulding of gold upon it all around. And carrying poles are attached to this so that nobody need touch this sacred box. And the lid of the box is a special object in its own right, the mercy seat. Then you shall make, says uh, the Lord in verse 17, a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And the cherubim, the cherubs, which are part of the mercy seat, uh, these are not, you know, those cute, fat, angelic infants that you see on greeting cards, on Christmas cards. These are actually pretty imposing uh, throne attendants. We meet cherubim in a couple of places in the Bible, in Genesis 3. The first one, the cherubim and a flaming sword guard the way back to the Garden of Eden, preventing anyone from returning there. They are these guards, these imposing angelic beings. In Ezekiel's vision of God enthroned on a mobile throne in Ezekiel 10, we have uh, these rather you know, fierce and mighty angelic beings racing hither and thither. And the golden models of cherubim on the mercy seat mark this mercy seat as being close to the throne of God, for these are the beings which support and guard God's throne. The founding documents of God's covenant with Israel, the tablets of stone with their commandments, were placed in the ark, the mercy seat went on top, and this magnificent and sacred object 
was placed in the very heart of the tabernacle, right, in the inmost place. And it was the most potent indicator of the presence and the rule of God. God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant, I will deliver to you all my commandments for the Israelites. Now, we could go on to talk at length about the tabernacle, about what's in it. But as the author of Hebrews says, of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Let me just emphasise that the tabernacle was a temporary portable arrangement, suitable while Israel were travelling to the promised land for God to, to dwell among them, to be with them, to go with them. Uh, this is superseded then by the temple in Jerusalem, which becomes a more permanent dwelling place for God amongst his people. But ultimately, both tabernacle and temple have been exceeded in God's purposes by the establishment of the new covenant. And so this brings us to the second thing I want to talk about today. God's full and final purpose is that he will sanctify his people and he will dwell with them in complete holiness. The tabernacle and the temple both separated the sacredness of God from the very much not sacred people. If God was dwelling amongst the Israelites, he was also in a kind of isolation away from them. That the ark was within a temple, a, a tabernacle that was behind a veil, within a tent that only the priest could go into, inside a court. The access to the ark, to the heart of the tabernacle, was really open only to Moses, and later on only to the high priest. This is not a final resolution of the question of how God will dwell with human beings once again. The next steps towards getting to that final end, which is God's purpose, are taken through the Son of God and the Spirit of God. So when we open up John's Gospel, John 1.14 says that the Word, the Word who was with God and who was God, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We could translate, he became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, pitched his tent, made his temporary lodging among us. Casts Jesus as a kind of tabernacle, a temple of God in his own body. John goes on to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. God dwelt with human beings by living amongst us as one of us. And that life, with its death and resurrection, make Jesus the cornerstone of a new temple. A temple not made of, you know, goat leather and shit him wood, but made of human beings. 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Today we mark All Saints Day. 
A day when we give thanks to God that we and our fellow Christians are saints. We are sacred ones. We are sanctified ones. We are holy ones. But God is not interested in staying aloof from us, isolated in his holiness, and we having to keep our distance because of our sin and unholiness. God's plan is to dwell with us in an open intimate, complete way. Revelation 21.3, the very end of the Bible, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Revelation 22, verse 3, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will see his face and they will reign forever and ever. This is a sublime and magnificent thing that we could become holy, sanctified, ready to live face to face with God. In John's vision of the holy city, he said, I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The glory of God gives it light. There is this No more hiding behind walls and within tents. And No, the light shines throughout the city. The Lord and the Lamb dwell there themselves without a container, without barrier. And when we sing, oh, when the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number, this is where the saints march into, this city, this place, where there is no more temple because the Lord dwells there And the whole city is full of the glory of his light. However, we are not there yet. And just as the Israelites had a tabernacle as a kind of anticipation of the fullness to come, so there is for us an anticipation, a beginning of God's holy world in God's church, in we who are believers. Ephesians 1 says, So then, you... You Christians are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. It is believers, Christians, God's people who are his dwelling place. 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? And this dwelling of God's Holy Spirit in us is even at the level of individual bodies. Do you not know, writes Paul, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. Every day we wake up in our bodies. We have to feed and wash them, dress and scratch and look after them. We have to go about the world doing things as the bodily beings that we are. How will it change how you and I live, seeing ourselves in our bodies as temples of God's spirit? Well, there is on the one hand the fact that God has honoured and dignified 
our bodies, by dwelling in them in this way. We may not think much of our bodies. We may have many problems with them. But God has chosen them to make them his dwelling place. He has honoured you and your body. Don't despise your body, mortal and frail as it is. And if God has made our bodies his temple, then we should honour God with our bodies. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. And so the last thing today I'll say about sanctity is that sanctity is our everyday calling. Our aspiration and our task is holiness. It's virtue. It's the service of God. This is what we are to do with our bodies in our lives. We are not to serve profanity and vice and self. We are instead to follow Jesus' exhortation who says to us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you intend to dwell amongst us and to make us suitable for that face-to-face relationship with you by making us holy. We thank you that even now, as we come to trust in Christ, we are being built together to be a spiritual house, a temple for you to dwell even amongst us, and that that extends even to the individual level of our body. And so help us, Lord, to honour you both with our bodies and to honour your presence in your church. May our light shine before others, that they may see our good deeds and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.